They jumped from much too low, from planes that were flying much too fast. They were carrying far too much equipment and using an untested technique that turned out to be a major mistake. As they left the plane, the leg bags tore loose and hurled to the ground. In nearly every case, never to be seen again. Simultaneously, the prop blast tossed them this way and that. With all the extra weight and all the extra speed, when the chutes opened, the shock was more than they had ever experienced. Jumping at 500 feet and even less, they hit the ground within seconds of the opening of the chute. So they hit hard. The men were black and blue for a week or more afterward as a result. In a diary entry a few days later, Lieutenant Winters tried to recreate his thoughts in those few seconds he was in the air. We're doing 150 miles per hour. Okay, let's go. God damn, there goes my leg pack and every bit of equipment I have. Watch it, boys. Watch it. Jesus Christ, they're trying to pick me up with those machine guns. Slip, slip. Try and keep close to that leg pack. There it lands beside the hedge. God damn, that machine gun. There's a road. Trees. I hope I don't hit them. Thump. Well, that wasn't too bad. Now let's get out of this chute. That's from the first two paragraphs of chapter five of Band of Brothers that recounts the D-Day invasion from the Allied forces and specifically what Easy Company went through, what the paratroopers went through when, when they invaded. And I thought that was a nice quote to open up with because it happened um, many years ago, two days ago from uh, the day I'm recording this. And it's nice to be reminded of that because we can read the challenges of history. We can read what happened in history and we can get a better sense of our own position in life. We can we can reframe what has been happening to us. And this idea of reframing something and redefining what something means and how it happens came up in another podcast that I listened to this month. This one was with Rory Sutherland on Shane Parrish's podcast, The Knowledge Project. In that podcast, Sutherland was recounting um, an example where an advertising agency was tasked with the job of figuring out how to get airport security lines moving faster. And he said that, that 10 or 15 years ago, it wouldn't have been an advertising agency that was consulted for this. It would have been consultants, or it would have been engineers, or it would have been um, a physical infrastructure that was going to be the solution to this problem. But but Sutherland says that, no, if you, if you reframe something, if you use psychology, you can actually get a much better solution cheaper. He said, quote, it's always more acceptable to spend money on infrastructure than to spend money on psychology, end quote. And he goes on to say that sometimes we feel like this is cheating, that, that we shouldn't do things this way, that we should do things the right way. But, but using psychology when you're dealing with people can be the right way. And we can use this reframing principle. We can use our own psychology when we read things about Easy Company and Band of Brothers. And we can remember that whatever obstacles we're going through in our own lives right now, whatever the challenges are, we're not jumping out of an airplane that was going too fast from an altitude that was too low and having people shooting at us and landing in a foreign country without all of our supplies and having certain objectives that we have to meet. One. I finished Jerry Kaplan's book, The Startup, which is about his experience running a pen computing company in the 80s and 90s, and it was an interesting book. It was suggested by Bill Gurley on a podcast, and it was also suggested by Trent Griffin, and 
Gurley said in his podcast interview that this gave a really nice introduction to startup founders, to technology founders, about the obstacles that they're going to face, about the ups and downs that are in front of them. And this is a really nice balance to books like The Everything Store about Amazon or The Upstarts about Uber and Airbnb because Kaplan's startup is is unsuccessful in the traditional way. It's not like Instagram. It's not like all of the stories we hear on the news. It just sort of fizzles out. There's not a real great conclusion at the end of the book. And, and there's a lot of obstacles throughout the book. In fact, there were there were three things that really struck me that you don't get in, in some of these other books about technology startups. The first was all of the legal challenges and obstacles there are. There's a lot of contracts written, not in the beginning, but, but as things go along, there's so many things you have to account for, and there's so many T's to cross and I's to dot, that if you don't keep it straight, if you don't think about these things, if you don't keep track of them and consider all these legal things ahead of time, then, then they're going to come back and they're going to bite you in the end. Mark Andreessen said in a podcast with Barry Ritholtz that he really likes to back founders that have thought through the idea maze. These are founders that have gone through a lot of the mental steps in their head ahead of time, and then when they come in and they pitch a venture capitalist like Andreessen, they've got good answers for things and obstacles that that may come up in the future. And legal obstacles can be a real hornet's nest. They can be really dangerous. They can be... A huge tangle and that was something that I hadn't observed before in some of the other books and interviews I've read and listened to. A second thing was that fundraising is crazy. Kaplan would write about how they would develop the product and how they would present it at a trade show and then how they would have to go out for fundraising and then that cycle would start again. They developed the product. They presented it they went out and did fundraising. And that fundraising component was so important. They came close to running out of money a number of times in Kaplan's tenure as uh, as founder and then as uh, chairman of the board and as CEO. That It was really striking that even though you hear about them raising tens of millions of dollars, and this was in the 80s and 90s, that, that still wasn't enough money. They still needed to get on this fundraising carousel and every time they came around they had to get off and they had to to do the road show they had to pitch people they had to look for strategic partners and that's something that also didn't come up a lot in some of the other books i've read the third thing that was nice to read about was how hard it is to build hardware this is something that came up when i did my research on startups that failed there'll be a link in the show notes for that short ebook but the startups that wanted to make a hardware product, the ones that wanted to make hardware and software, had so much more trouble than the companies that just wanted to make software. Hardware is really hard to get right, and it's it's amazing in this book. The things that they were doing 20 years ago, the, the ideas they had that we now have available to us on our smartphones and our tablets and even on our laptops, they all of these ideas, all of these tools we have, that we use now and we take for granted now. They've been in development for, for 20 years or so. And it's taken 20 years because making hardware is really a challenge. Kaplan's company was trying to make um, uh, handwriting uh, detection software and it never really worked as well as they had hoped it would. They were trying to build something with the right battery and the right processor, but but all of these things are intertwined. This is This is what the book says about 
this, this mess of things and trying to get everything aligned. Quote, All computer products are hopelessly interdependent, stacked like faces carved in an endless technological totem pole. Application designers exploit operating systems tailored to computers built around chips that implement protocols based on specifications developed in committees staffed by application designers. Everyone in this evolving loop must guess which new technologies are most likely to provide a solid and enduring platform on which to build their own piece. The problem is that these commitments must be made long before the surrounding pieces are ever delivered because the computer business moves so fast that waiting is suicide. So resources are allocated on the basis of promises and reputations, not observable facts, like oceanfront condos sold on the strength of a developer's rendering." End quote. It's really hard to do the thing that Kaplan was doing. That's, that's why they were one of the first people to do it. And then uh, competitors like Microsoft piled on. And, and Microsoft plays a, a supporting role in this book. And it was nice to see because recently I finished Michael Lewis's The New new thing and Microsoft was was a minor player in that book too and, and sometimes we forget how big Microsoft were was in the 90s how large this company was and how it was on everyone's mind that was in technology and in, in Lewis's book we hear about how people thought Microsoft was going to get into healthcare too Microsoft would get into any market that it possibly could and that hasn't been the case but it's interesting like we started at the beginning of this podcast to look at history and to see how things were framed and to see maybe how current framings reflect that or don't. Overall, I really liked this startup. It was a good, quick book from Jerry Kaplan. Two. This podcast is being recorded in the summer of 2017 and both of my kids are out of school. And because they're out of school, right now we've been trying to reinforce some of the things they learned in school specifically for my nine-year-old daughter her multiplication facts and one book that we've got one resource that helps out with this is this life of fred series which is an, a mathematics book for kids but it's written in a real narrative style where you follow a five-year-old professor around on his adventures and his exploits and one of the things that comes up in the book, one of the ways to explain multiplication, is this idea that multiplication problems can be dissected, they can be broken apart. If someone doesn't know what 9 times 9 is, they can figure out what 9 times 3 times 3 is. And because multiplication is um, easy to break apart like that, it can help someone in their learning process because we found that in the previous grade, the third graders understood simple multiplication, like multiplication by twos and threes and fours, much better than they did sixes, sevens, and eights. And all eight is, is really two times four. So this breaking apart is a helpful tool because numbers don't care if they're broken apart. Numbers don't care if they're separated. There's no weird knockdown effects that are going to happen when you take apart numbers doing multiplication. The same thing cannot be said of people or organizations, which are much more complicated. We call these complex adaptive systems, where doing the thing, breaking them apart, changes the thing. And this was true of the startup, the Jerry Kaplan's book that we had just mentioned. Kaplan's uh, company started out as a hardware and software company. Eventually, they spun out one of those 
groups to be another company and you would think that you're just taking one piece and, and making it a new piece and, and it didn't turn out that way. That new company that got spun out had a different leadership that was much more combative to the old company. They didn't interact really well. It was almost uh, more competitive and combative than it was cooperative and you get that when you tend to deal with people. Rory Sutherland brought this up too when he talked to Shane Parrish. He was addressing driverless cars and technology, and he pointed out that if, if you look at a, a doorman of an apartment building in a, in a large city, one of the jobs that doorman does is, is he opens and he closes the door for people, but that's not the only job a doorman does. So you can create technology that replaces the doorman, that opens and closes the door, but the doorman does other things. A doorman is an outlet for people who live in the building. The doorman watches the building. The doorman uh, understands gossip. The doorman keeps the area around the building safe. The doorman has all these other jobs that are in addition to just being a doorman. And you can think that if you replace one, the, the human, with one, the mechanical and the automated, then you're making an easy switch. It's replacing A with the letter B. But that's not it at all. When you take people out of something, or when you take one part out of a complicated adaptive system and you replace it with another part, you don't always get the same results. Sometimes you get something much greater, or sometimes you get something that's much worse. Some problems, usually simpler problems, that have entities that can't react, like multiplication problems, uh, are really conducive to breaking apart and getting down to the simple parts and solving each simple part and then putting it back together again. Much like the way you would build a Legos castle. Other problems, problems where the pieces, if they're separated, will change in and of themselves. Those problems are much harder and a different approach is needed to solving them. Three. The Beanie Baby phenomenon was something that was really amazing. I finished the book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, by Zach Bissonette, and I wrote a blog post about the book that we'll just talk about here. To recall that time in the 90s, that crazy time, Beanie Babies were created by Ty Warner after he was quit or was fired from his job selling stuffed animals for another plush toy company. Warner had been an excellent salesman, but thought he could do better on his own. The cause for his dismissal was selling his own creations along with his employers. That was a big no-no. Warner didn't care. He thought. No, he knew he could do better. His first solo plush creation was a cat that sold well to, and this is not a joke, quilt collectors. This business was fine, but grooming each long-haired cat took a lot of work, and Warner searched for another option. Ultimately, he landed on the Beanie Baby. Warner made repeated visits to his Chinese manufacturers, talked to people at trade shows and in stores, and had a hyper-focus on this product. Once it was finally good enough to be sold, he only sold it to small store owners. You probably remember seeing them in Hallmark stores, most of all. Warner believed that big box stores would put Beanie Babies in bins and that would diminish their value. Warner also made sure that store owners paid, uh, paid for their product in full upon delivery, not allowing any 30 days or 45 days to make their payments. Parents ended up buying Beanie Babies for their kids at first. Kids took them to school and the phenomenon started to spread. 
Some parents became more active collectors, and to keep track of the available beanies, some people took to sharing a checklist of all the ones that had been out. Warner, through this, continued to tinker, making changes in different lines. If something wasn't to his liking, he would order the next batch slightly different. This purposeful tinkering led to the accidental phenomenon of retirement. The early collectors started to search eBay for these retired beanies and would call their friends around the country to look for them. Warner's production was limited at the time. Later, this was a marketing ploy, but early on it was an issue of cash flow and how much credit his bank would loan for inventory. Scarcity led to increased prices, and the internet led to the conveyance of this information. As some people started to make money, more people piled in. At the end of 1998, 7% of all eBay listings were for Beanie Babies. The mania continued as McDonald's got involved. Warner wised up to the idea of scarcity really late in the game and took to actively retiring more and more beanies and creating limited runs, but not telling the consumers which would be full force and which would be restrained. The cycle of mania continued. People saw other people make money off Beanie Babies. People joined those other people. More suppliers meant more supply, and with an undifferentiated product, they had to compete on price. Prices were pushed down. Warner at this time had ramped up supplies to the point that so many beanies were being produced that everyone who wanted one could get one. By 2000, the craze was over. What the heck happened? Let's start with Warner. Warner understood his customers very well. Part of what made him a great salesperson was this deep understanding. He talked to customers, store owners, and even quizzed his girlfriend's daughters about what they liked and didn't. Warner got his MBA from his time selling plush toys at another company, and he continued learning as he was at his own company. His formal education was limited to one year in college, but he was always learning and focused on what he could do better. The 1990s were also an era of getting online. Warner's sales were helped by the proliferation of the checklist, thanks to the internet, and secondary sales on eBay. He was also fortunate that there wasn't much competition. In the book, Bissonnette wrote, quote, The idea of starting a plush company in the early 1980s was no one's idea of smart. It was a stagnant industry, 50 years past its prime, with no growth in sight, end quote. So, much like the Instagram guys, or Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada, the best time to start something is when no one else is starting the same thing. Warner had some nice tailwinds to push his company along. Another advantage Warner had was, was financing. He never took on debt and required his retailers to pay in full upon delivery. He also stocked the beanies in airports, thinking they would be good last-minute gifts, and traveling from the airport to school book bags would be good marketing, so the beanies spread out across the country, and Warner did almost no advertising. While Warner had great success, there were ultimately some lessons that led to his demise. For starters, Warner succeeded despite his ego, not because of it. Bissonnette wrote, quote, I am the designer. I designed everything. Controlling every aspect of the animal's existence was a fixation for Warner, and it stood in stunning contrast to his nearly total disregard for the feelings of people he was closest to. He carefully excised everyone else from the story of his rise. His father hadn't gotten him his first job, he hadn't used freelance designers to create his bears, and he started the company all by himself." End quote. So, while Warner had the ego to believe he could do it, and the ego to design them. His ego pushed him so far that he thought he was the only one responsible for success. The employees that go ahead and say things in the book don't give Warner 
the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't come off in this book as a hero. He actually, he, he's much closer to, to a villain. So while Warner did some things right with Beanie Babies, he was laser focused on the quality. He had a simple marketing and pricing plan. He had favorable terms of obtaining capital. He had his retailers under very strict rules for selling the toys. He had a great business. He was aided by the conditions of the time, but ultimately when the winds died down, when the internet had raised Beanie Babies to an incredibly unnaturally high level, and because of Warner's ego, it ultimately came crashing down. Warner is still incredibly wealthy, and his time with the Beanies was a success. But the lessons that we should take away to help our own lives should be the lessons that helped Warner and avoidance of the ones that brought him down. Four. David Gerfin was on the Capital Allocators podcast with Ted Seides, and the whole interview is interesting, and Gerfin talks about his experiences in the Marines and uh, running for an elected position and his time in his MBA program. But, but the big idea, the central theme behind this episode of the podcast is about culture and what it means to create a healthy culture in an organization. And Gerfin talks about some ideas that we've touched on in this podcast and that I've written about on the blog, thewaiterspad.com. He talks about how commanders need to give commanders intent. You need to tell people what direction we're working on, what's the big goals, and let them figure out the way to do it. Gerfin says, quote, at the end of the week, this is what I perceive everything will look like. I recognize that my plan to get there may not work, but you on the ground are going to figure out how to get to that end state because you're going to know better than I do, end quote. Good leaders understand that the people that face the situation, whether it's a customer or a battlefield or the computer code, the people that are interacting with those things are the ones that are going to have the most information and be able to solve it best of all. That's part of decentralized command which Gerfin also brings up in this podcast. He also says that leaders need to provide the right top-down support for the people who are making these decisions. Gerfin said that he liked to encourage people to have, quote, a propensity for action, end quote. And then he went on to say, quote, we have the saying, good initiative, bad judgment, end quote. Good leaders need to support the actions of the people below them because that starts to create good culture. If people feel empowered, if people like engaging with their problems and their situations, then you can really create a helpful culture that will grow. You can create something that is greater than the sum of its parts. We started this podcast on June 6th, 1944, in the skies of Normandy, and thinking about what it was like to be a paratrooper in that situation and how that kind of reframing, that empathy, that change of point of view can help us in our own lives, how it can let us approach problems in a different way. Then we looked at the startup, Jerry Kaplan's book of his time and the lessons of how hard it is to do things and how you really have to go through the maze of ideas and face the personal and the legal, and the technological, and the financial problems that your startup will face. 
We talked about breaking apart problems, how some problems, breaking them apart and solving them a little bit at a time and then reassembling them is incredibly helpful and it's a great way to use that skill. And other situations where the pieces can change as you break them apart, it's not quite as helpful. We looked at the Beanie Baby craze of the late 1990s and what that says about the time and what that says about tailwinds and how our own ego can unravel some of the most successful things we can build. And then we talked about culture and what that means and how uh, a Marine was able to bring the lessons from the battlefield into his own life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.